Hello, everyone. Welcome to Yale Talk. I'm Peter Salovey, and I'm delighted to be speaking with you at the beginning of a new academic year. Of course, the start of this semester is unlike any other. Over the summer, we had been preparing for this moment, implementing innovative teaching methods, setting up comprehensive COVID testing strategies, creating quarantine and isolation protocols, and enhancing disinfection and cleaning procedures. In the midst of all this activity, we have also been reactivating research at Yale. And as a global research university, we have a responsibility to resume our search for ideas and solutions as quickly, but also as safely as possible. Of course, reactivating research during a public health crisis is a challenge. However, we have the advantage of being home to internationally recognized experts in public health, in medicine, in nursing. And with their guidance and the careful deliberation of research reactivation safety committees comprised of faculty, graduate students, and postdoctoral trainees, we've been able to resume successfully this critical aspect of Yale's mission. So today, I'm joined by two graduate students who went through the ramping down of research in the spring and the reactivation of research over the summer and into the fall. Deandra Dilworth is a doctoral candidate in the Department of Chemistry. And Chris Londa is a doctoral candidate in the Department of Classics. Before we get to what happened during the pandemic, I think it would be helpful for each of you just to say a little bit about what you work on. Deandra, tell us a little bit about your research. Of course. First, thank you again, President Salovey, for inviting me to this podcast today. And so a little bit about me. I'm an organic chemist here at Yale, as you mentioned earlier, and I'm working with Professor Scott Miller. And my project is actually part of a center which the NSF supports funding these holy grail ideas. And the idea here is that the ribosome, as we know it, makes proteins, which is a polymer. But we wondered if we could use the ribosome to make things other than biopolymers, like materials like Teflon or polyketides like antibiotics. And so as a chemist, I'm working on figuring out the types of reactions we can get to work in biomimetic conditions that could possibly be facilitated by the ribosome to make all these cool polymer structures. Wow, that's very cool. And, you know, my father was a uh, polymer chemist. Oh. He started his career at Bell Labs and finished his career at the University of Southern California. And he wasn't into synthesis the way you are. He was more a measurer of the physical properties of polymers like PVC and polyurethane, polystyrene, and ended up, you know, at the end of his life uh, with some applications to materials that could be used, for example, in artificial hips and things like that. But I don't think he would have ever thought in a million years that you could take the ribosome and actually use it as a test bed for synthesizing materials, you know, that. The ribosome has been doing this for, I guess, billions of years now. And, you know, we're, yeah, for us. So, um, yeah, scientists are, are really just in the beginning of, of thinking about can we really push the boundaries of what the ribosome can do. So it's a really exciting field and I'm really happy to be working on this project. So it's both synthetic organic chemistry, but it also feels a little like... Um bioengineering. Yeah, yeah. It's really at the crossroads of all of those fields. And that's why this is like a center that really pulls on a lot of talents. So it's not just organic chemists working. We have biologists, we have biochemists, bioengineers, as you mentioned, computer scientists. So it really brings in everyone. Yeah, it's great. Uh, when I talk about one yell, it really is that idea that all disciplinary boundaries 
they may have some meaning, but it's not really the way problems get addressed anymore. Chris, tell us a little bit about what you do in classics. Sure. Um, and uh, I'll just say it's, it's a pleasure to be here. But um, yeah, so my uh, dissertation is interested in the question, um, who in ancient Rome gets to be an author and why? And a good way to start thinking about this is, well, how does a person become an author in the 21st century? So let's say, President Salve, you wanted to write a novel and get it published. And so you put pen to paper, you bring it to printing presses. They say, okay, this is a great novel. We'll publish it. It gets distributed out to libraries all over the country. We get a copy in Sterling, for example, and then scholars in the humanities 10 years from now are writing essays about this novel and so forth. We have all these institutions in the 21st century that do a good job of linking people to their labor, their intellectual labor, linking their works to their products. So I'm interested in how this works in ancient Rome, where there's a couple of different caveats. One, the Romans didn't have a strong legal sense of intellectual property. And two, ancient Rome is a slave society. And so many of the voices that we hear coming out of Rome are these sort of elite Rome who are really habituated to sort of thinking about labor in a way that includes slavery, and they're very used to extracting labor without giving credit. So my dissertation tries to examine this tension between how we still talk about a lot of authors in antiquity, a lot of classical authors as these kind of genius figures who are singular talents and they get all the credit for the work that they're doing. So attention between that rhetoric and what we're finding out about what actually happened in the room where Latin literature is composed. And in that room, it's often a multi-person enterprise. So you'll have the titular author but there will also be secretaries, scribes, tutors, scholars who are in various ways involved in the process of producing Latin literature. And a lot of these individuals were actually enslaved to the titular authors. And so they're in the room because of this power relationship that's extracting labor from them. I think they shed light on what authorship is in Rome which is less about sort of writing texts and has more to do with relationships of control and power and access to networks. So while most of my dissertation is focused in antiquity, I think these questions have relevance to how we think about authorship and authority today. What an interesting set of issues. Deandra mentioned that her mentor is Scott Miller. Who is the professor that you are doing this work with? Irene Perano Garrison in the classics department. Wonderful. So are there any exceptions where a Roman author actually gives credit to the scribe or, you know, to e even though it's uh, exploited labor, you know, but something more generous than what we might expect to see. Yeah, it's really hard. So one of the major pieces of evidence for these kinds of relationships is in the Roman author Cicero. And we actually have a book of letters that survives between him and his secretary, uh, Tiro, who at one point was enslaved to Cicero and then eventually emancipated. But the problem with this kind of evidence is the only letters that survive are ones that Cicero himself wrote. And so Cicero is dictating the terms of this relationship. And so at times he'll see to extend credit to Tiro in these letters, but he's very quick to pull it back if it seems like he's getting too far away from Cicero himself. So a lot of the problems in my research get into how do we deal with these kinds of sources where we're trying to read between the lines and through these sort of elite perspectives. Very interesting. We'll get back to both of the actual research that you're doing in a moment. But what I want to talk a little bit about is what happened when we essentially shut down. You know, when the public health crisis began, 
we got everybody on campus to focus on our most pressing needs. And at that moment, it was really, what can we do to prevent the spread of the COVID virus? Public health officials basically said we needed to do everything we could to reduce potential mortality rates, potential infection rates. And so we really ramped down research and most university operations last spring. You were both doing research last spring, and so I'd be interested to hear what happened. You know, how were you able to continue? Were you able to continue in any way? And how did you preserve productivity while also being safe and keeping others safe? Deandra, you want to start with that? And then I'll ask the same question to Chris. Yeah, it's an interesting question, you know, tying productivity to safety, because it's something as a chemist we think about all the time. We always have to be productive in the confines of safety. Um, And usually in those confines, safety comes first. And this was no different. Our first concern was safety. So we made sure that all of our instrumentation could be shut off in a proper manner so that nothing would be damaged if we had to leave it for a long period of time. We made sure our reactions were stalled in a safe fashion. Everything was quenched appropriately, you know, making sure that our freezers weren't too full to the brim and things that could be discarded were discarded. And so in those first weeks, I think maybe we had a week and a half to really bring everything to a closing point. And in that time as well, if we finished early, then it was recommended that we just stay at home and don't try to come in and do more things. And so in the beginning, it really was safety over productivity. Yeah. You know, a certain amount of uh, standard operating procedure for a synthetic chemist probably includes PPE. And, and so you're absolutely you're, you're halfway there already. <laughs> yeah. And uh Chris, you do a very different kind of scholarship, more uh, archive-based. How did you, did you have to wind down and how did you continue your scholarship? So there, there wasn't a sort of abrupt wind down in the same way. This, so there, there were definitely sort of interruptions in the kinds of routines and habits one sets up to be able to do this kind of work well on a day-to-day basis. So I uh, really enjoy working, for example, in Yale's big reading rooms in the library. And so workspaces suddenly disappear. But the work was largely able to continue at home. But I should say the big interruption for me was I left New Haven, I think, on March 6th for spring break. And I went out to Berkeley, California to visit my partner and basically stayed there for much of the pandemic. And so it was, for me, a kind of intersection of well, we can't go outdoors, there's no library space, that sort of thing. But also I'm in this different place and having to sort of rearrange how my work continues. Yeah, those uh, Bay Area counties shut down quite early. and They did. Oh, you must have been like the last flight in or something. <laughs> yeah, I was heading out to JFK. I just sort of could see on the subway, just sort of panic in everybody's eyes. And everyone was very agitated at the airport. But I got there okay. And I should say that I was preparing to go out there for my dissertation fellowship, which would have been at the start of this year. And so I had done a lot to try to download various online resources, scholarly articles. I was preparing to be removed from my work uh, or from sort of Yale's physical resources already. So that was a real stroke of fortune in being able to continue because I had a lot of these things on my computer. Let's talk a little bit about reactivation of research. Deandra, when did you get noticed that you could actually return to the lab? What was that process like starting back up? You know, while we were in the shutdown, similar to Chris, we were also just doing a lot of text-based research. And so that could still continue. And so we still had maybe meetings 
three times a week. In the meetings that were getting closer to May, we started hearing word that we might be able to start reactivating soon, and we were officially allowed back in the labs in the first week of June. Chris, was it the same time schedule for you? So I still have not been back into Yale's Classics Library, and I hope to get back there in a couple of weeks. So I've, I've been removed from a lot of the major physical resources. There were some sort of checkpoints along the way in which sort of the kinds of research I could do changed. So Yale has this great program called Scan and Deliver, where you can put in a request for a chapter of a book that Yale has a physical copy of, and, and it'll get sent to you. And so that was working for a little while, but at some point that service shut down as well. A real stroke of fortune was that two weeks after that, um, this initiative with Hathi Trust Digital Library took off, and they made open access a, a huge library of books corresponding to the ones that Yale had physical copies to. And so at that point, you can go on and check it out digitally for an hour and flip through the pages. And so that really allowed me to continue with a lot of a lot of things. And what about travel? Would you have gone to Italy at some point in all of this? Or maybe there's archives at other universities. Is that all shut down? Or are you able to do some traveling? I, I guess I've talked about how my short-term research continued. The long-term things are more in jeopardy. I had plans to attend a, a very specialized training in reading Latin inscriptions in Rome in June. And they offer this training once every two years. So I'd waited for it. And that has been canceled. And that was to set up a future research trip to really sort of go on my own and explore these collections in Italy. So that's still a big question mark, and it'll depend on what's what's safe and what the university and the national policies look like. And then there was a conference I was supposed to attend this month in Austria, actually, and that has been moved online since. So these kinds of international gatherings have really taken a hit, I think. Yeah. In my life, too, you know, usually I would spend, I don't know, somewhere between a third and half of my time on the road. And since that second week in March or so, I haven't left New Haven. Uh, actually, that's not true. I haven't left the state of Connecticut. Deandra, what about you? A very big part of scientific culture is sharing ideas at conferences and visiting others at other labs and that sort of thing. Uh, is any of that possible at the moment? That's a good question. Organic chemistry here at Yale has been very, very lucky. We actually had a lot of extra space available in our labs to actually expand. So one of the great things is that all the organic chemists are actually working on a pretty normal full-time schedule, but we've just separated it so that instead of having four people working in a lab space, we have two people working in a lab space at a time. So as far as the amount of people that you can run into in the lab on a day-to-day -day basis, that hasn't changed. I know in some departments, especially a lot of science departments, it's switched to a shift schedule. So you might not be seeing half of your lab just based on how space works. However, Talking to people in other labs has been very difficult. And it's a, it's a great thing that with all of these new protocols, we can make it so that you don't run into people from other labs, but you do miss out on a lot of good conversations and a lot of good ideas that can come out of those sorts of interactions. You know, I'm reminded by what you're saying of something that was written by Tom Stites. Tom Stites was a Sterling professor of molecular biophysics and biochemistry at Yale. He also did a lot of work on the structure of the ribosome and its role in protein synthesis. He won the Nobel Prize in chemistry in 2009 for that work. He wrote his Nobel Prize autobiography in a very compelling way, and he talked about how in-person interactions facilitated by Yale's laboratory culture were critical to research excellence and critical to his own work. And he talked about how you get ideas for research through face-to-face -face discussions with peers, with mentors. Well, 
hanging out at a coffee shop or moving laboratory glassware from workstation to workstation, bench to bench. How do you do that now? Is it all through the magic of Zoom? Yeah. More realistically, a lot of the conversations that are happening are happening on Zoom. And we set up subgroup conversations where people who are not working on similar projects meet once a week to talk about our progress, talk about our problems. And so in that way, we can, you know, have other people in the lab take a look at what we're doing, maybe give suggestions. You know, in the past couple months, that has been my main source of project ideas and getting over some of the walls that I had hit in my research. No, that sounds good. Deandra, I know you're doing something in New Haven, too. You share science with younger people in New Haven. Tell us a little bit about that, and can you do it during the pandemic? I am a part of Pathways to Science here at Yale, which is you know a large STEM outreach organization. And over the course of these last couple of months, we have started Exploring Science, which is an online outreach program for New Haven and the surrounding areas. We've been running this program for... 17 weeks now. And we just tabulated the numbers. And over the course of the last 17 weeks, we've been able to reach just under 500 students. Every week we bring in two graduate students in a STEM field and they talk about the research at like a middle school level. And the students are able to ask questions and we take them into breakout rooms so we can have more organic conversations like this with them. And you're doing that all remotely over the internet. Yep, this is all over Zoom. We have, you know, 10 year olds figured out how to get on Zoom. Sometimes they have their you know, younger siblings there as well. And you can see sometimes they have the, their photos on, their videos on, and we get to see them, you know, in their living rooms enjoying science. One of the things that seems to have happened here is people are looking for that kind of interaction and stimulation and a lot of kids looking for something different to do. I bet they're quite receptive to attending the uh, pathway. Yeah, yeah, they definitely look forward to it every week. And, you know, we give them little activities um, to do afterwards as well. And they always come back the next week with, they're like, oh, look what I did. Like, so excited. I'd like to end our podcast with a question about the future to both of you, DeAndre and Chris. I believe what we all went through in the spring and over the summer will make us more resilient when it comes to challenges that our world will face, that we will face as individuals in the years ahead. And I think we learned a lot about Yale and we're still learning a lot about Yale, how we approach our work, how we approach the operations of the university. And I think some of that will carry over to more normal times. You know, I don't like the idea of what's the silver lining of a pandemic when people are getting sick and some are dying. But having said that, what is something that you learned or that you learned in your interactions with Yale that you think will help us when we put this crisis behind us? Chris, you want to start? I only, I'm only calling on you first because I saw you yeah. nod. So I'm just thinking about how we build communities. And it's much easier, as we've talked about, to build them when we have people in the room, but how to, how to build them at a distance. And I think because of the pandemic, suddenly our departmental community, everybody scaled up and got Zoom capacity and are learning how to use new tools like Slack and these sorts of things. I mean, one thing that's going to enable these communities to continue to exist when people, for non-pandemic reasons, are at a distance. If someone's on a research fellowship abroad, they may still be able to attend the sort of talks that are happening physically in the department. So I think there's some, some positivity there. And then the other thing I would point to is it's going into the semester where we're doing a lot of teaching via, via Zoom online is obviously a big challenge. But I think in some ways, 
Although there's a lot of labor involved, it's a really healthy impetus to rethink why we teach the way we do, what's actually important, how do we communicate with our students in a, in a space where communication is very difficult. And so I hope that some of those habits will sort of enter the pedagogies that we bring forward into the future. Now, that, that is good to hear. I know the Purvu Center for Teaching and Learning has done a lot of workshops on how to teach over Zoom. Uh, my wife, Marta, is teaching her maternal and child health class at Southern Connecticut State University over Zoom. And she didn't think she would enjoy it, didn't think she could be effective in that medium and instead finding that actually it works. Her students are being in many ways at the first couple of sessions more participatory than ever before, which is a bit of a paradox. And probably there's some lessons about pedagogy that we can learn there. Deandra, how about you? What are takeaways for the future that are positive? I feel like I would really just want to echo a lot of those same sentiments. Working on a large collaboration where many members are at other institutions, you know, some at Berkeley, in California, all over the United States, and even in other places around the world, the conversations that we would have over video chat before this pandemic felt a little bit more artificial because it was in place of what would be in-person communication. However, now, I see just how effective and how real video communication, video collaborations can be. I know for me, I've always felt that certain kinds of meetings that I had to do in person and had to fly to do, I, I don't have to do anymore. And that saves a bit of wear and tear, saves a bit of money. But maybe most importantly, it reduces my carbon footprint if I don't have to get on a plane every time I need to see someone and, and could instead use Zoom. I think some of those habits are going to carry forward in a way that benefits all of us. Well, I want to thank both of you for joining me. This is a busy time in the semester. I very, very much hope that your research flourishes in the year ahead and wish you the very best of luck. So to the friends and members of the Yale community who've joined us today, thank you for listening to Yale Talk. And until our next conversation, best wishes and take care. The theme music, Butterflies and Bees, is composed by Yale Professor of Music and Director of University Bands, Thomas C. Duffy, and is performed by the Yale Concert Band. <laughs>